Genesis 49. Genesis chapter 49. As we uh, we started this two weeks ago, and I want to thank Charlie again for teaching last Wednesday in my absence. Sure means a lot to know that uh, we're loved enough to be able to take take that time away for family when we need it. Uh, it's not something that I've taken advantage of a lot throughout my ministry, but uh, it's probably to my shame that I haven't. If you, if you don't see it, I just want to make sure you know there's a wasp right in front of you. Yeah, he's still alive. All right, Genesis 49, uh, we'll start in verse 8. Uh, read verses 8 through 12. Again, we're looking at Jacob's blessing. Uh, Jacob's blessing to his sons. He's, he's going to move a lot slower now, so somebody can't catch him now. It'll be pretty bad. Um, we'll read verses 8 through 12. We've already covered verses 1 through 7, so again, that is recorded if you want to listen to it. Uh, but for time's sake, it'll be really hard to get through the chapter if we go back over all of it. So if you would like a copy of the outline, I can't just leave that. Uh, if you want a copy of the outline, let me know. And I'll, I will gladly get it. He's wingless now, Charlie. He's good. <laughs> Verses 8 through 12 of Genesis 49. Judah, thou art he whom the brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Uh, thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh. And the word Shiloh, it's capitalized as though it is referencing a city, but we're going to talk about this in a minute. The, the word Shiloh literally means he whose it is. And when Strong's defines it, he capitalizes the W. So it's not a reference to a city here. He whose it is. So it says here, until Shiloh come. Obviously, we don't know of any cities that come. It's usually a person. So he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his asses cold unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his, his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Now, if you just walked into a Baptist church tonight and heard this, you would think this scripture is about the Lord Jesus Christ clearly. But remember, Jacob's on his deathbed, propped up on the headboards, essentially, of his bed. I know the New Testament says staff, but it is likely referring to a side of the bed or the head of the bed. And he is speaking to his sons. He's speaking prophetically because he's speaking blessings of God the Father upon his sons. But this, from a human standpoint, is not something he would have known anything about. He just referenced in the previous verses, as we talked a couple weeks ago, about the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Also something not really explicitly referenced in the uh, book of Genesis, though we see it, not something that's ever given attention to until Jacob breaks it down in three different divine parts. And here, what else could he be referencing? We're going to go through this uh, a little more detail, but it just... These are my favorite four verses of the entire chapter because there's nothing else he could be talking about. And we know, of course, from Judah's line will spring forth the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So as Joseph was to receive the double inheritance of the firstborn that we talked last time, though he wasn't the firstborn, uh, we know that to be Reuben, but he's unstable like water. And Joseph's the oldest of Jacob's favorite wife. So Joseph receives the double inheritance of the firstborn and Judah receives the patriarchal dominion and responsibility of the firstborn. He would be the leader among the tribes, according to what Jacob says, which we know to be true. If we know our Bible history, that's coming. And he would defeat their enemies and would become as the lion is the king of the beast, the one before whom all his family would bow down. His tribe would be strong and courageous and his land would be productive and fruitful. The comments here described uh, uh, described in these four verses are as a, a fruitful wine press and a land full of milk. They're not stating that Judah would be an alcoholic, but they're stating that there would be plenty, that Judah would, would not only be triumphant, but obviously well cared for by God the Father, which we saw that transition really since Judah's chapter with Tamar and, and the mishandling of his uh, of marrying off his sons, we've seen a transition in Judah's character, character more pronounced than any of the other sons to the point where he becomes the speaker for the group in front of Joseph before they really know that he's Joseph. So what a wonderful journey that we're, we're seeing Judah on. Some other things about Judah's line, King David will come from Judah's line. Some other offspring to include... Moses will come from Levi, Joshua from Ephraim, Gideon from Manasseh, Samson from Dan, uh, Samuel from Ephraim, Saul from Benjamin, and Daniel also from Judah. With David, uh, is the, the, the part of history concerning David speaks almost literally to this scepter. Because with David is where the scepter first comes to the line of Judah, but you might mark this in your Bible, it doesn't happen for another 640 years. So what Jacob's talking about is not anything he would have any idea of. He's presently a nation inside or incubated inside of another nation there in Egypt. But he talks about a king where his people had yet to ever have one. I just referenced Saul, who, who's going to come from... Uh, the, the Benjamin's line, but Saul's the first king of the Israelites and he doesn't exist yet. But in 640 years, the scepter will come to the, the line of Judah. David will be their king and it does not depart until really, well, in, in a lot of ways ever, but until the Lord Jesus comes, until Jerusalem falls, they don't go back to having a king again. The scepter goes, as we see in the text, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. There's no way Jacob could have known about this except for the Holy Spirit. So if there was any doubts in the chapter so far of where Jacob's getting all of this, it, he's not making it up. We see in the first few verses and the end of last chapter where he crosses his hands and gives the blessing and Joseph says, wait, the oldest is on the other side. And Jacob says, I know, I know. And this is proof that Jacob is answering to a, a higher calling, a higher influence in, in this conversation and in this point in time. This is the first use of the word scepter, the Hebrew word shebet. And in the Bible, it is a symbol of rulership. It's not a, a simple tool or a simple uh, actual physical scepter, but it is a symbol of rulership. And we see the word lawgiver here for the first time in the Bible as well. And it corresponds to one who gives decrees. 
And the phrase between his feet, which we see in these four verses, tells us that this is in all likelihood referencing Judah's seed. And you can understand biologically why the reference is between his feet. He's talking about the seed of Judah when it comes to this lawgiver, and it comes to this scepter, when it comes to Shiloh, all coming from between the feet of Judah. The word Shiloh here is, as I said, it's not referencing a city. There will be a city near Bethel at some point that shares its name, but it doesn't exist yet. There is no Shiloh. I, I don't want to make light of this situation, but these, these men, these sons of Jacob, at some point, <laughs> Judah's the one we see the most transition with. Joseph we know to be extremely faithful. I don't know what the other brothers were doing as this news was being delivered, but some of them had to look around and think, what is dad talking about? Where is Shiloh? Who is Shiloh? When will we have a scepter? When will there be a lawgiver? When will any of these things come to pass? We see so far 640 years covered in this prophecy. So far. Given the context of how this word is used, this word Shiloh in the text, it is clearly a reference to a person. It says, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And we can confirm, of course, that once again, Jacob is being used to speak prophetically of this coming one, who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed does come from the line of Judah, or the tribe of Judah. Remember, though, he's not completely ignorant as to what his own prophecy means. Can you imagine being in Jacob's position and speaking to his children and and, and Death at death's door. He's at the end. And he's saying things that he himself has to know they don't understand. And maybe he doesn't fully understand some of the things that he's saying. But it was told back in the Garden of Eden that Eve's seed would eventually bring a redeemer. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. In Genesis 3.22, a little bit down the page there in Genesis 3, we read, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Imagine now the generations that have come and gone up to this point that have looked for this one. Jacob may not have fully understood everything, but he knew this one was coming. And we've been saying since the beginning, the purpose of this study through Genesis has been to track the promised seed. It has been to to look for, possibly find, what they should have been looking for and finding. And as we go into Exodus, we'll do the same. Where is the Messiah? When shall he appear? This coming Sunday, we're we're, we're continuing our our progress through the Lord's ministry toward that Passover in Jerusalem. Christ's last Passover in Jerusalem. And they should still at that point in history be looking for the Messiah. Where is he? Has he arrived? Imagine these generations looking and looking and looking. And Jacob, like Isaac, like Abraham, had longed to see this one as the Lord had promised over and over again. And I'll give you some examples in a minute. Imagine being Jacob and bearing this news to his sons and to his grandsons. The day is coming. We know the line. I have 12 sons and he'll come from one of you. 
And he essentially spells it right out in those four verses. It's going to come from Judah. Shiloh is coming. The people shall be gathered. All those that have been chosen of God the Father, us, his chosen people, Jacob would say, he's coming for us. He's coming again. Genesis 12, 3, we read, And I will bless them that bless thee. God is talking to Abraham. And curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 22, verse 18, again to Abraham, we read, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Genesis 26, verse 4, now talking to Isaac, God says, I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto thy seed all these countries and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis chapter 28 verse 14, now to Jacob. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I believe there's a reason that throughout Genesis, this book of beginnings, every time these types of promises are spoken, the writers, and it's, a, it's been a different chronicler every time, has given us a direct quote from God. We, we're not, this information isn't revealed to us as Jacob comes away from uh, uh, Beersheba and tells his sons what God said. We're told in real time in those verses, God said this. We're told as he's saying it, the way it's being written. These are the words of God. Jacob's got to be delighted. He's got to be elated. Here he is, Shiloh, out of Judah's line. Praise the Lord, we haven't been forsaken. Oh yeah, we're in Egypt. There's a famine throughout the world. and We've been preserved. And we've also not been forsaken. I don't know what else a father would want to hear as he's passing. Jesus is most assuredly the Shiloh being referenced here. Listen to some proofs of this. Revelation 5.5. And I think we read Revelation 5 uh, recently for another study, but Revelation 5.5 reads as follows, And one of the elders saith unto me, John, of course, is the one speaking here, the Apostle John, the elder says, Weep not, behold, the Lion, capital L, we're speaking of Christ again, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Remember in Revelation 5, uh, there's a lot of weeping that this book can't be opened, that none are deserving, none are worthy of opening this book. But the one described to open this book that we know revealed later in that chapter is the Lord Jesus is described as a Lion of the tribe of of Judah. Verse 9 of Genesis 49, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and until him shall the gathering of the people be. Here, Jacob says, Shiloh is coming. Here, Jacob reveals our people, his people, he is gathering. In Revelation 5, 5, that same one is worthy of opening up the book, of releasing the seal. 
in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, we read the following. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old. Genesis 49. From everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his people shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Jesus is coming again. This is the message of the New Testament. This same one, this same lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, this same one Jacob spoke of, who did come, in fact, is coming again, and rightfully coming for his own and soon. Genesis 49, looking now at verses 13 to 15. Jacob turns to Zebulun and says, Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. Um, And you might add into your Bible, shore. It's a reference to the seashore. And he shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Issachar is a strong ass couching between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good, and the land that it was pleasant, and bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant unto tribute. Now these following verses, as Jacob starts to talk about land, is still being disputed today. That's important. This is where that begins. It goes on through the Old Testament, of course, but it's still going on in 2024. That, that's still happening right over there tonight, even this very hour. Who does the, the land belong to? And really we're at a point in history when scarily enough... A lot of the world has chosen a different side than they once had. The end is near. This Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. All we truly know of these two brethren, Zebulun and Issachar, is what the Bible has essentially assigned to Joseph's brethren. Everything that we've read thus far, whenever we read Joseph's brethren, that gives us the only description we really have so far of Zebulun and Issachar. The land given to Zebulun, And again, I'd mentioned before, we're going to do a lot of flipping to Joshua 19. So if you want to look that up and put a finger there or a bookmark there, that is where they finally get into the promised land and they start to issue this land to the tribes as Jacob decreed here. So we're going to flip back and forth between Joshua 19 and Genesis 49 a lot. But in Joshua 19, 11, we read, And their border went up toward the sea and Marilah and reached to Dabasheth and reached to the river that is before Jokneel. The precise border today, uh, borders today are hard to decipher. However, Matthew 4.13 suggests that its border extended to Capernaum on the shore of Galilee. This is a region, as we have seen, in which much of Christ's public ministry took place. It's a region that we're still dealing with even in the, uh, the Perean um, section of our study on Sunday afternoons. Of Issachar, his father essentially said he was strong but docile and lazy. He would enjoy the good land he was assigned, but he wasn't going to fight for it. Leaving his tribe to be pressed into servitude 
and burden bearing. That's what he's talking about there in verse 15. Genesis 49, verses 16 through 21. We've got multiple brothers in each one of these sections now. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. If the brothers weren't looking around before trying to figure out what Jacob was talking about, I'm sure they are now. He says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last, or on the heel. Out of Asher his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. As I had mentioned two weeks ago, I'll do my best. There's a lot in the Old Testament that this could be speaking directly to, so I'm going to line it up the best that I can. Uh, those who don't normally collect the outlines may at the end of this want one, uh, just to have all of this in one place, and that's fine. Just let me know. Here we have the four sons of the two handmaids. They're all grouped up into this one section of the chapter. Uh, but they're not listed chronologically. Uh, and there was a, an outline maybe a month ago that I passed out that did have everybody listed chronologically. So if you want that reference, you can go there. Once again, most of what we know of these brethren were accredited to all of Joseph's, Joseph's brethren up until this point uh, and during the events that we've already looked at. Dan's reference toward being a serpent, by the way, is likely connected to his tribe being to blame for regularly introducing idolatry into the land of Israel. Judges chapter 18, for example, verse 30 and 31. And we've got a lot of examples, but we'll, we'll, we'll give enough to prove it, I guess is the best way to say it. Judges 18, verses 30 through 31. And the children of Dan set up the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. And they set them up Micah's graven image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. And here now we have that actual city, Shiloh. Some of these references are really fun, by the way, because they connect a lot of dots. It was also in Dan that Jeroboam, who would, um, who would lead the rebellion that culminated in the divided kingdom, set up one of his two golden calves in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 28 through 30. Because of these things, in correlation to what the Lord commanded through Moses back in Deuteronomy 29, is likely why we do not find Dan listed among the tribes in Revelation chapter 7. Something to consider uh, is what Moses laid out there in Deuteronomy 29, uh, because I, I, am, I am issuing a lot of references here, so I want to read some of them to make sure that we understand what exactly they're dealing with. The law that lo the Lord gave to Moses in Deuteronomy 29 is in, <coughs> is in verses 10 through 21. And it reads as follows. You stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God, and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto fathers, uh, uh, unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he hath said unto thee, and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and the, this oath, 
but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. For ye know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the nations which ye passed by. And ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. Lest there should be... Uh, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass when he heareth the words of this curse that he bless himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace though I walk in the imagination of mine heart to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. As I said, Dan's not mentioned in Revelation 7, 4 through 8. And the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. We're getting there to where Moses is given these things. Uh, and after we get through Exodus, we'll see a lot of things that we'll, we'll get to spend some time on. But understand that this is the preset that Dan, uh, that Jacob could be speaking to for Dan coming. Not everything that Jacob is telling his sons would have elated him, like what he told Judah. It wouldn't have, not all of this pleased him, I'm sure. Oh, how Jacob longed for the promised seed. And here now, he, he has to compare one of his own sons to a serpent. As the devil in the garden. Is there any wonder he seems to interrupt the prophecy or interrupt the the blessing that he's speaking? And he says, and I believe Jacob is saying this from the heart in the middle of what he's hearing himself say, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Because he just said this, he pronounced this about Dan. He can't do anything to stop it. He can't do anything to keep from happening what's going to happen to his sons. I know that in the flesh we like to think, oh, free will, I got a lot of choice. Go stop the sunrise tomorrow and then we'll talk. The free will that man has is not sovereign. The only free will that we have is limited to our very nature. And we were born totally depraved. We are free to sin as much as we'd like to, in other words. We can do no good thing. Multiple times throughout the Bible, we see God looked from his place at all mankind and none considered him. None were righteous. No, not one. None did good. None were deserving of grace or salvation. And for Jacob to have to pronounce, just for Dan, what he says about Dan, he says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. This is the first mention in the Bible of the word salvation. Can you believe the things that were revealed to Jacob in all of this? It is the Hebrew word, Yeshua, or Joshua, or Jesus. He not only says Shiloh, he says our Lord's name. Of Gad's territory, which was east of the Jordan and on the edge of the Ammonites' kingdom, He is said to repel the invading troops continually. We see indeed that his tribe does that throughout all of 1 Chronicles. Asher's lot fell on the rich northern seacoast north of Mount Carmel. 
all the way to Tyre and Zidon, as we see in Joshua 19, verses 24 through 31. His tribe fails to take the latter region and eventually became insignificant, likely deteriorating because of their love of ease and influence of the Phoenicians, which is also foretold in these verses. The best known of Naphtali's descendants was Barak. Uh, And let me go back and read uh, what's said of Naphtali. Uh, He is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly works. Uh, And the best known of his descendants is Barak, who with Deborah won a mighty victory over uh, Jabin and Sisera of the Canaanites in Judges chapter 4. Mainly with men from his own tribe and that of Zebulun, according to Judges chapter 4 verse 10, The part of the prophecy referencing how his tribe giveth goodly words was possibly regarding the victory song of Deborah and Barak, which we have in Judges chapter 5. Like I said, some of it's pretty fun. Genesis 49, verses 22 through 26, as we press on. Jacob says of his son Joseph, he is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shone at him and hated him, and, uh, but his bow or bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, which is, this is the first reference of God to either a stone or the rock in the Bible. Even by the God of thy father who shall help thee and be thy, the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors. Which that word just simply means the, the, those who have gone before Jacob, the fathers before Jacob. Unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. This word, um, this phrase separate from is the Hebrew word nazir, which is also where we get the word Nazarite, which has profound connections to our Lord and Savior. The blessing on Joseph is the longest of all of them. He is a fruitful bough, attacked by his brothers, but victorious in the end. This kind of already happens, right? And uh, it says here, Joseph gives, or Jacob gives Joseph a variety of blessings, material and spiritual. He assures Joseph of ultimate victory through the God of Israel, as Joseph has already seen through a lot of his life. He says that Joseph is a prince among his brethren. This is what he says there at the end of verse 26, uh, when he refers to him as that Nazir or that uh, Nazarite. He was set apart. He was sanctified from his brethren for a purpose. That's what separated or sanctified means. It is prophetically significant that Jacob's blessings, uh, blessings centered especially on Joseph and Judah, and that these two eventually become the two dominant divisions of Israel. Physical blessings to Joseph, spiritual blessings to Judah, including the Messiah who would come from far as uh, from that line. Uh, Now verses 27 and 28, just a few quick notes on on these last uh, few verses and then we'll close. Genesis 49 verse 27, Benjamin shall raven as a wolf, in the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. 
All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is it, that their father spake unto them and blessed them. Everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them. Benjamin is compared to a wolf catching the game he pursues and then enjoying his prey at night. King Saul came from this tribe and was a conqueror. Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, also came from the tribe of Benjamin. His tribe would be bold. They would be strong. They would be successful in warfare. But at the same time, they would be known as being very cruel, which we know of both the Saul's that I just mentioned. Verses 29 through 33 of Genesis um, 49, which of course will bring us to the close. And he charged them, Jacob did, and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. This part isn't new. We, we heard him tell Joseph this uh, a couple chapters ago. I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a possession of a burying place. And we've referenced this before in this study. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. Remember, that's not where he buried his second, um, his, his preferred wife. She wasn't buried there. Uh, she was by the oak, which is quite a few chapters back by this point. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. A cave was purchased years ago by Abraham for this expressed purpose uh, with faith. It was, a, it was a testimony to their faith that this is the land that God has given us. We shall be buried here. They're still buried there. Unless man has dug them up, this is where they lie. It was to be a testimony to all the generations to come that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had faith in God's promise that he would give the land to their seed. It was a testimony that Jacob would have Joseph take his body from the land in which they were now being preserved back to the land of promise. And it kind of completes a cycle of every time we'd seen God's man of this nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, every time they had gone into Egypt, for whatever reason, they were brought back out of Egypt. And this is no different for Jacob. It'll be no different for Jacob's descendants. As we enter into Exodus, we'll see they are removed once again from Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world, remember. That's not their home. That's not their dwelling place. They're gathered near unto God as a shepherd would bring his sheep in, or as Jesus said recently in our afternoon study, he would gather them in as a mother hen, as he would gather them underneath his wings of shelter. But they are not to reside in the world. They are to be dependent upon God wherever they are, but that land is theirs. It was promised unto them by God the Father. The last chapter here is the longest and most detailed account of any burial in the Bible. It's actually really interesting to me if you were to read through Jude tonight that the burying place of Moses is, remains unknown, but we know exactly where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were buried, and they were buried together with at least one of their wives. 
It emphasizes that even in death, the body be treated with honor and be buried in such a way as to give testimony that one who died believed in the future resurrection of the body as fulfillment of God's promises, as fulfillment that there's more to come beyond this life. I won't turn this into a a sermon on uh, cremation and all that, uh, but I don't believe in it. I don't believe that we see any godly examples throughout the Bible of cremation. So that's something to consider if that's on your to-do list, we'll say. So that concludes Genesis 49. That leaves, of course, Genesis 50, uh, which we should be able to conclude, uh, Lord willing, possibly next week. So do continue to pray for this study if you would.